We're coming to the end of our vigil at the foot of the cross. For the last six weeks during this season of Lent, we have watched and listened in a kind of stunned silence as Jesus speaks from his cross words of forgiveness for those who are crucifying him. And as he offers redemption to a criminal who in the last possible moments of his life confesses faith, we've watched Jesus provide a family for his mother and dear friend and then declare his own bodily need for water before crying out unthinkable words of abandonment before God. My God, my God, why? We heard that last week. And we can tell as we go along that things are building to, toward some kind of, of crescendo because today, even nature itself joins in bearing witness around the cross. Until this moment, all the players around the crucifixion have included soldiers and, and the crowd and a couple of Jesus' companions. But now, Luke informs us, a presence much bigger and more mysterious is building and gathering over the hill called Golgotha. Jesus, uh, Luke tells us Jesus is crucified at noontime, but instead of bright sunshine overhead, absolute darkness closes in. Plenty of people have offered scientific explanations uh, for this, but, but Luke is actually more, more attuned to making a theological point here that all of creation is bearing witness to what's happening to Jesus at this moment. Fred Craddock once said, if stones can cry out when disciples are silent, why wouldn't the sky darken when the Son of God hangs dying? The whole earth is lamenting the execution of Jesus. But not only is nature behaving uncharacteristically, now there is this, this ripping of a sacred cloth in, in the Jerusalem temple. You heard the words Charlie wrote, uh, read just a minute ago. And the significance of, the, of that moment may be lost pretty much on us 21st century types. It's very foreign to our religious framework. But to a first century Jew, this is a mind-boggling event. The temple in, in Jerusalem was divided into three parts. There were the outer courts where anybody could enter. There was the holy place where only priests could enter. And then there was the most holy place where the high priest alone could go in once a year to make amends for the sins of the people. And it was in that most holy place called the Holy of Holies that the Ark of the Covenant rested. And for Israel, God's very presence was tied to the Ark of the Covenant. And Luke tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross and darkness covered the land, the veil of that temple was torn in two. This was the veil or curtain that shielded the Holy of Holies from view. Symbolically, that curtain separated a holy God from sinful people and now the veil was gone. The writer of Hebrews, in response to the tearing of the veil, wrote this. The writer said, Friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God in the most holy place. Jesus, says Hebrews, has cleared the way 
by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. The curtain is gone. Separation gone through Jesus Christ. It's a moment. So now all of this is going on. Darkness descending, the veil ripping, nature itself leaning over the Son of God on his cross, and finally, the sound of a loud voice. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then Jesus exhales his last breath, and everything goes silent. Did you notice Jesus doesn't whisper these words or gasp them or whimper these words? Luke says he calls out in a loud voice, and the fact that Jesus has any voice left at this point shows his astonishing strength and will. And when Jesus calls out these words, I want you to notice something because this is crucial. As he calls out these words, will you notice that he shifts the entire event of his death? See, up until this moment, it looks for all the world as though his life is being taken away. His little religious band that he put together has been nipped in the bud, clearly. All of his followers have scattered to heaven knows where, and now he's receiving the most vicious treatment the empire can inflict on him, which by all rights should have made him their victim. But with one astonishing word, Jesus snatches back everything they think they're taking from him. With his last ounce of bodily strength, he cries, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. I give myself back to you. Father, I place my life in your hands. Jesus is giving away what they think they're taking away. And suddenly the whole scene is thrown off balance. Barbara Brown Taylor describes it as a mighty game of tug-of-war going on here. Jesus on one side, the whole empire on the other, and all bets, of course, are on the empire, when suddenly Jesus simply lets go of the rope. And all the ones who think they've got him fall on top of each other. I've shared this before, but I can't help but think when I come to this text of what my friend Jason Carter told me a few years ago, Jason is the grandson of our friend and former Sunday school teacher here at First Baptist, Jimmy Carter. And as a boy living with his parents in Skokie, Illinois, Jason came to know a seamstress named Fanny Krause. She worked at the dry cleaners where his family took their clothes. And Skokie at that time had one of the largest number of Holocaust survivors in the nation. And Fanny was a survivor of Auschwitz. And she would give Jason Hershey, Hershey kisses when he came into her shop and would talk with him sometimes. And once Jason asked her, Miss Krause, how did you survive Auschwitz? And Fanny said, I fasted in the concentration camp. What do you mean you fasted? He said, there was barely any food at all. Yes, she said, the rations were sparse. But once a week, she said, I gave my ration away to someone else. By doing that, I remembered I am human 
and no one can take that away from me. Father, I place my life in your hands. Jesus is giving away what they think they're taking away. Into your hands. In Luke's gospel, Jesus' final words are not of abandonment, as we heard in last week's text from Mark. Mark remembers how Jesus quoted Psalm 22 from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Luke, Jesus also turns to Holy Scripture, this time, though, to Psalm 31, which says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus' final words are a giving of himself back into the hands that made him. And as we listen to him say it, it seems like the most natural thing in the world for him to do, but is there anything harder or more seemingly unnatural for people like us than to give ourselves or the people we love into hands other than our own? About 15 years ago, my younger brother, my only brother, whom, as I have mentioned here before, we've always just called brother, uncle brother to Taylor and Lucy, decided that his life needed a new turn. He was recently divorced and single again, and his desk job felt unbearable to him. And so in the period of just a few months, he left his job, sold his house, and bought a 45-foot sailboat and took up residence on the high seas. None of us could remember when we last saw him so happy. For my mother, though, relinquishing her baby boy to 141 million miles of open water was terrifying. The entire time he lived on that boat, every morning at 4.30 a.m. before beginning her workday as a teacher, my mother got on her knees and commended my brother into the hands of God. Some of you have whispered on your child's first day of preschool, into your hands I commend her. And then again, into your hands as you watch her back the car out of the driveway bound for college. Some of you have prayed into your hands over your struggling marriage, over your struggling kids, your parents, your finances, your career. Into your hands, you pray it when the lab report comes back, as it did for Paul and Brenda two years ago. Oh, there's a shadow. Something's not right here. You pray it when you've, all that you've worked for and planned for for years evaporates because of some calamity or collapse. You pray it when you wake up at three in the morning, aching, reaching for someone you love who is gone from you now. Our dear family friend, Brenda, prayed it just this week from a hospital room in Dallas. Brenda is my age. Two weeks ago, she was grading college papers and planning summer travel with her husband and children. Diagnosed this week with metastatic pancreatic cancer. She now is trying to decide between chemotherapy or simply managing the pain in the wrenchingly brief months she has left into your hands. Parents are praying at this morning over their children separated from them at the border. 
Men and women are praying it from prison cells and recovery groups and soup kitchens. We pray into your hands when we realize our hands aren't big enough to keep us and that much bigger hands are needed here. We have a word for this, you know. We call it faith. And part of faith is learning how to stop trusting so much in what our own nearsighted eyes are telling us and to look instead for something greater, a deeper meaning, a deeper presence. Jesus could have looked all around him from his cross at the very real circumstances right up in his face and concluded he was pretty much done for. But Jesus saw more. He saw past the pain and betrayal, the ridicule, the abandonment, the humiliation. He saw past that. He saw behind it all that God was working to make something beautifully redemptive for the world. It's like that image we know so well here of sitting in the theater and the curtain comes down after the act of the play is finished. And even though your eyes tell you that nothing at all is happening there on that stage, what you can't see behind the curtain is all that's taking place, quietly preparing for the next act. Next Sunday is the next act. But from today, from his cross, Jesus was trusting the one at work on the other side of the curtain. And maybe you and I, impatient as we are, can learn from him how to trust too. I think surely today's word from the cross reverberates most in the hearts of those who know they are dying. Or those who are releasing someone they love into death's arms. For them, the words into your hands become breathtakingly personal. Almost 20 years ago, in November of 1999, my mother and brother and I stood around my father in a hospital room in Orlando at three in the morning. The cancer had done its work and we knew that his time was short. And it's an important and beautiful memory for me that as he died, in the moment of his death, my mother was commending him into the arms of God with the words of Psalm 91. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. He will shield you with his wings, He will shelter you with his feathers. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night or the dangers of the day. We commended my dad to the only hands big enough to keep him, even in the huge mystery of death and life beyond. And sisters and brothers, when it comes my time to lay down and die, I want to commend my soul, like Jesus, into the hands of a trustworthy God. How about you? In the days you have left, however long or brief they may be. There's a prayer 
by the 19th century French missionary priest Charles de Foucault. It's his personalized translation of the Lord's Prayer. And I'd like to offer it now and let this prayer lead us into silence and stillness. And so I invite you to close your eyes and let this prayer become your prayer as you're able and as the Spirit leads. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. For you are my Father.